0: Hello and welcome to another episode of For What It's Worth. I'm Evan Lucas, InvestMart's Chief Market Strategist. Joining me in the hot seat this week is the fantastic Joe Masters, Chief Economist at Ernst Young Oceania. Joe, welcome to the program.
1: Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure.
0: Yeah, look, I think I want to start actually with something that you've sort of been looking at from your point of view at EY over particularly the you know the last sort of decade or so around the disruption in the employment market. This week we obviously get our employment numbers. Again, it's been a trigger for why the RBA cut rates last week. They're certainly moving in the wrong directions. But your your point particularly is around how this disruption, particularly digital disruption, just isn't being picked up and it's probably part of the slack in the employment market. Can you explain how you're sort of coming to that conclusion?
1: Sure. So we know that the labor market is being disrupted um, from a variety of forces. And I hear a lot about, you know, the gig economy. Uh, but obviously it's it's a lot broader than that around the globalization of the labor market, uh, technology and the and the changes in that. So we know our labor market is changing really rapidly. That change is already happening now. Uh so that's a really important point. This isn't something that's going to happen in the future, it's happening right here, right now. And the change is going to accelerate from here. Uh, One of my colleagues at EY often says the pace of change will never be as slow as it is now. Uh, So I think that sort of puts into perspective how quickly things are moving underfoot. Uh, So some of the interesting things there is around how we think about the labour market and actually how we measure the labour market. So, you know... We've got this casualization of the labour market. We know more people, for example, are working more than one job. The share economy is coming in. Uh, and I guess one of the themes that I talk about is it's very hard to measure how we're preparing for these changes if we don't know where we are now and we don't know where we need to be. Um, so, I think that's one of the big challenges in the labour market.
0: Yeah. do no, uh, I pick you up on that? Yeah. I'd love to have sort of a, a bit more of a drill into that because... That's the interesting question that comes out of this is I agree with you. Globalisation is the one thing that I believe that most people still don't fully understand and or accept. Are we ready for it? Do we actually – because I actually believe it's already happened. Globalisation has been going on for pretty much the last three decades, not even the last two. Um, And the spread of labour, you know, you can argue about the Chinese export of deflation to the globe. That's another sort of question. But in terms of being ready for the disruption that is globalisation, is Australia actually – positioned for it or or are we just reacting as we see?
1: I think that's a really hard answer, question to answer sort of categorically. Um, But I don't think anyone's really ready for it because I actually don't think we really understand or really know what is coming. But I agree with you, globalization's not new. And if you think about it, There are lots of things that we export now that 20 years ago we would have thought were unexportable. Uh, So if you think about healthcare, we think about education, we think about financial services, architectural services, all of those things are now tradable. And the labour market within those is also tradable. So we've got uh, mobilisation of a workforce that's greater than we've ever seen before and overlaid with that, of course, uh, technology and and the ability to um, connect through Um, you know, Skype or VC or or whatever it is. And even those will advance. There was something on LinkedIn recently um, that showed uh, where you can be like a virtual person inside a a room. So this is moving underfoot as we speak and it's making the labour market much more flexible and much more global and much bigger in its capacity.
0: So that brings to the next question and sort of what we saw, as I said, at the start of the conversation around the RBA. Can they actually achieve their sort of now in the forehandle unemployment rate is the market going to continue to see a scenario where we just cannot pull the slack out of the underutilization and underemployment parts of the market that just continue to move as you just alluded to the fact that we are doubling up in jobs the fact that we want to work more but can't and then there are those that, that actually can't find the work they're looking for is is it possible to pull that slack down?
1: I think it's a tough gig. Uh, in a labour market where supply can expand uh, in a greater way than it, it could have done previously, makes it much harder to to generate wage inflation. And look, we don't we see that in Australia, but we actually see that globally. In the US is a great example, right? Um, the unemployment rate is the lowest it's been since we put put a man on the moon, and they're only just starting to generate some wage growth. And in a historical Sense that wage growth is still actually not that high. So I think it's pretty hard. And I think a lot of the sort of long held um, definitions of how we measure uh, where the unemployment rate needs to get to are being challenged. So, as you mentioned, we're talking about underemployment, not just unemployment. Uh, and so I think we need to adjust to all of those things. And look, the reality is you never know what the, the correct unemployment or underutilization rate is in terms of generating wage growth until you get there. So that's one of the difficulties. We don't even really know where we need to get to.
0: Probably then switching switching sides and and sort of going to what also has sort of started to come out since May 18 and obviously the the surprise that was the federal election, then also the fact that we've now had a 25-bit rate cut from the RBA and switching back to something that we here in Australia absolutely adore, which is property, something I know also that you've been following very, very closely at EY, Do you see a revival or do you see a plateau in the housing markets? The first question. The next question also that comes out of this is going forward, housing and living, inverted commas, in in Australia obviously is a changing beast on a fairly regular basis. Is actually buying your house the best option or is renting the other way? So two parts to that question.
1: Sure. So look, to start – off. And look, everyone loves to talk about housing, no matter where I am or who I'm talking to. Um, so, you know, what do we know? Well, there's a few things that have changed in the last month or so that have um, implications for the housing market. So, uh, the election outcome, the rate cut from the RBA, the also um, APRA looking at um, reducing that mortgage serviceability. Um, uh, minimum level, that 7% level, uh, and also perhaps more at the margin, but the federal government's um, first home buyer grant scheme. So, what have those four things done? Well, they've boosted sentiment in the housing market unquestionably. So, we've seen that in the auction clearance rates. Prior to those four events, actually, we We're starting to see some green shoots, very, very early ones, that at least in Sydney and Melbourne, the pace of decline in house prices was starting to moderate. And now you've had this sentiment boost on the back of it. The way I think about it is more that um, these four factors are not going to, in my opinion, generate a V-shaped recovery in the housing market. We still know there's an awful lot of supply coming on stream. And the reality is actually that whilst house prices have come down, it's still really tough for first home buyers uh, to save enough uh, of a deposit, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne. Um, So I think about it as um, a plateau in the market. And I think about it most as um, probably boosting confidence that the housing market is near its lows and that will over time gradually recover. Uh, so, that's how I think about it. In terms of the second one, um, sort of buy versus rent, look, we released a report earlier this year that that asked that question and, and we asked that question because actually at EY, uh, we have quite a young workforce uh, and it's an issue that I hear in the lift and in the foyer and, and around the place. And what we tried to do there um, was look at sort of the question, are you always better off buying? Is buying a home the only way to generate wealth uh, for your future? Uh, And as always, your modelling has a whole heap of assumptions. Um, So, you know, we looked at uh, only a 10-year hold period, for example. And we also had, and this is really important, um, in our scenario, the renter was also a saver and an investor. So, to be more explicit, in our modelling, the renter had saved the same amount of money as the homeowner's deposit. The renter lived somewhere they could afford to buy and they invested um, in a leveraged equity portfolio, that equivalent of the home deposit. So, but what we found is there are periods of time and period and certain postcodes where you're not always better off to buy. Now, I'm not suggesting people don't look at buying a home, but I guess what I would encourage young Australians to do is have a more open conversation with themselves and investigate uh, more options than just uh, assuming that buying a home is the only way to generate wealth for your future.
0: Yeah, and I actually want to pick up on that because that's sort of, I want to come to that in a minute because I really want to get to sort of, you know, what my sphere is and, and what I see at the moment going on in markets. But just want to go back to your first answer, particularly around the possibility that housing obviously could bring a level of confidence that we haven't seen in this country probably for about the top of the market, let's be honest. You know, 2017 when when the, when we got there, we got GDP last week if it wasn't for public spending and for net exports it would have been a, a whole lot worse which was already you know not exactly a great set of numbers let's be honest do you see that that sort of confidence could actually push household spending considering that that's obviously a drag we have seen now business confidence again this week being fairly subdued let's let's sort of call it what it is C- can there be a turnaround in gdp are we going to see you know some form of positive movement from private investment and consumption to actually support the other two, which have been doing a lot of the heavy lifting for probably the last more, even four quarters even.
1: Look, I absolutely agree. The GDP numbers were really weak and outside of net exports and public spending looking really weak. Um, the domestic consumer is the biggest risk uh, looking forward, partly because it's the biggest part of our economy um, and partly because of the housing uh, effect and the willingness to drive down savings, consumption growth has been running faster. Than income growth. So there's a whole load of headwinds there. None of them are particularly new. You know, wage growth weak, record level of debt, low savings rate, um, essential items are taking up a record portion of household budgets, and now house prices are, are falling. There is some good news in the near term. Uh, so we do know in the second half of this year that income growth will be boosted for lower middle income earners in Australia through the combination of the lower middle income tax offset. Um, which looks like it will pass. Um, So that will be really important. And also the 3% increase in the minimum wage, not as big as the last two years, but still, you know, a a reasonable above inflation uh, wage increase for those workers. And that hits about 20% of the workforce directly, but another 20% through minimum wage plus contracts. So those two things will boost income growth. Um, the one in three Australians that own a home with a mortgage will get some sort of disposable income boost uh, through the RBA rate cut as well. Look, the big question is spend or save. Um, now, lower middle income earners tend to spend. Uh, they have a h- higher marginal propensity to consume, partly because they have to, right? They can't afford to save. Um, so we would look for some sort of consumption boost uh, from that, but one thing that does worry me is um, at EY, we have EY Sweeney, which is our in-house consumer research uh, um, and a survey that we took. Now, this was taken just prior to the federal budget, but it showed that the percentage of people planning to pay down debt had fallen from 60% a year ago to just 30% today But when we cross referenced it, what we found is that that was looks like it's because people can't afford to pay down debt, not because they don't want to. So the spend or save question is absolutely critical. It will be the biggest question through the third quarter of this year. And one thing I think that's important and related to that is uh, job expectations. So I think what you do with that income boost uh, looks very different if you are confident in your job prospects versus worried about your job security. So a bit of a long answer there, but I think I've covered a few things.
0: It certainly has. And look, just before we move off this whole sort of sphere, the final, and hopefully it's a very short one, is how far, therefore, does the RBA go to support basically what you have just alluded to? Uh, with regards to consumption to try and give some form of a either disposable income or the ability for those in those middle to lower incomes to actually save how many more cuts are there to come from an ey perspective
1: sure so it certainly looks like one more cuts on the table um, governor Lowe has alluded to that and that would fit with with history um, I, I expect that will be in August um, although the the timing is a you know, could be July. Um, Beyond that, I think it depends. uh, And it depends on two things predominantly. One is what the unemployment rate does, and one is what the global economy does. And if either or both of those deteriorate further, then I think you could get further rate cuts.
0: Perfect segue. Thank you for that. That sort of makes my job quite easy because that is my next question is, from my perspective, what really is catching a lot of attention, and it should, is Global growth, we are having a big, big warning sign from the US with regards to the the differential, so the inversion of the 10-year bonds to the three-month bond, which is historically one of, if not the greatest indicator, inverted commas, of a US recession in the coming 18 to 24 months. It's pretty much done it almost 100% of the time since 1900. It's now minus 21 bips. Uh, It did go minus in, in March as well. So they, they are on. If you have a look also over there, the Fed fund futures to the two-year bond is in negative territory, suggesting that the, the US Fed will cut rates at the moment, it says, by 60 bips, so probably uh, at least two rate cuts in the next 12 months. And we here in Australia are also now having the similar movements downward in bond yields in Australia. We are slowing, which is what we've just talked about. Do you see global growth going the way of a recession? does that therefore also mean that the US-China trade issue can start impacting our net exports? And, and how is all of this going to play out, not just on markets from my perspective, but how you see that playing out with Australia being an economy that is obviously inside the G20, but only you know on the periphery, let's be honest. Can we actually sustain what could be the, the next you know global sort of downslow that we've seen pretty much since 2012?
1: Yeah. So I guess to start off, um, global growth, we know it's slowing. If you look at, total global growth actually in the last 50 or so years there's only one calendar year where global growth has actually been negative and that was 2009 so global growth itself is actually quite a well diversified portfolio now there's winners and losers along the way but um for the global economy to contract most likely requires um some sort of event a credit event like we saw in in 2008 2009 um and, in fact, global growth generally sits between about 2 and 4%, so it's not even really that variable. Um, I think for Australia, though, what we are seeing, though, is a slowdown on our doorstep. So Asia is slowing, China is slowing, some of that's cyclical, some of that's structural. You know, you can't continue to grow at 10% as China was doing when the global financial crisis hit. So global growth is slowing. I don't think a global recession per se is likely, Um, I think you're right around the U.S. I mean, you know, I think sentiment around the U.S. has shifted considerably uh, in the last couple of months. Lots of focus on the inversion of the U.S. curve. Um, The big one for me, though, is that the market is now pricing in um, Fed rate cuts and, obviously, the fiscal expansion and stimulus is also sort of coming to an end. Um, So I think that's really important. I think it's really interesting that the RBA changed their um, language from Trade tension to trade dispute. Um, So I think that's a warning sign. And also, technology related manufacturing in China is growing at the slowest pace since 2004. So look, the risks have clearly um, moved to the downside. We're a small open economy, exports are incredibly important for us. In the near term, we might. Uh, look okay in the sense that any fiscal stimulus that comes through in China is likely to be focused on construction and infrastructure, which feeds into our commodity base. But it's pretty hard for Australia to face into the domestic headwinds if the global economy softens much further.
0: So, yeah, and therefore, the question that comes out of that is that are we therefore seeing not just the issue around the US and, and the implications that have come from their different ways of obviously approaching the Chinese trade conundrum that they face. Uh, What it actually means to our largest trading partner, 37% of our exports obviously go to China, as you just alluded to. Do you see a hard, soft, medium-sized landing with regards to the Chinese economy? Or does how, how the Chinese operate give you a little bit of confidence that although they might slow, they'll actually see themselves through it and therefore our overall net exports can continue on on a, maybe not as, as strong a footing as it has been, but a footing that actually remains in a positive GDP point?
1: Sure. So, I mean, China's complicated. <laughs> um, That's an I guess the comment I would make is I feel like we've been talking about a hard landing in China almost since I started work. Um, yeah, decades, right? Yeah. So, and they seem to, for want of a better word, kind of muddle through, right? They seem to do okay. Um, Now, some of that comes down to they have more control over their economy than most advanced economies, right? Um, So, they have that ability to um, deleverage at a slower pace. They have ability to push through fiscal stimulus. Um, So, look, my gut feel is that we're more likely to see a soft landing than a hard landing, and I think for Australia, the important thing is there that that stimulus is likely to feed into those a lot of those things that we export. Uh, so I think that's important. The other point I'd make for Australia is there's the cyclical element in Asia, but there's also that structural rise of the middle class, not just in China, but in Asia more broadly, and it's growing really quickly in numbers and it's growing quickly in terms of average disposable income. And we are really well placed to capitalise on that: education, tourism, healthcare. Uh, all of those things that have become exportable, uh, we are really well-placed. So, I'm I'm reasonably optimistic that we can maintain a positive sort of growth impulse from trade with China.
0: Yeah, and I'd love to actually expand on that any further. But unfortunately, Joe, we've run out of time. Thank you so much for joining me this week.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: That's all for this week. If you're interested in finding out more about Investmart, where you'll find all of our previous episodes, as well as Alan Kohler's weekend briefing, thoughts from Australia's best financial commentators, please head to investmart.com.au. Invest smart, let's make wealth happen.